Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night of August 20th, 2020, as we are streaming live on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine and on SoxMachine.com. Wow, what a four-game series the Chicago White Sox just had against the Detroit Tigers. After falling flat this past Saturday in their doubleheader loss to the St. Louis Cardinals, the White Sox showed no mercy to the rebuilding Tigers, outscoring them 31-9 to in four games, and the White Sox now have a five-game winning streak. We got a few great performances to recap this week, including the debut of Dane Dunning. Later in the show, we will look ahead to this weekend's Crosstown Classic Part 1 at Wrigley Field. The Chicago Cubs have a comfortable four-game lead in the National League Central, but they've only played 500 ball in their last 10 games. We'll look at the pitching probables and discuss the keys to the series to see if the White Sox can win a second series in a row. So let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Even though the Tigers are in a rebuilding mode and they debuted two new pitchers in this series, it was nice to see the White Sox take care of business with a four-game sweep. Yeah, sure is. You know, we talked about before the before the series that we expected or figured the White Sox should be uh counting on themselves to win the series but it's always difficult to sweep you know it it takes 
you know, both pitching and hitting. And sometimes just a pitcher has an off night or, uh, you know, the, the offense hits into hard luck outs and so forth. And so you can't quite get the luck to line up four days in a row. But, you know, the White Sox looked like the better team. They looked uh, just superior. And it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, the tone of these podcasts seem to match you know, a line pretty closely, like a, a correlation of nearly one. Uh, the the tone of the podcast uh, and the quality of the opponent. <laughs> you know, we're not really we're not really raving about how the White Sox played against better teams, and uh, uh, you know, and and you know, when it comes to the lesser teams, the Royals, the uh, Tigers, namely, just that it's a whole lot cheerier. So I think that's kind of uh, uh, just where the White Sox are in terms of their rebuild, in terms of their the quality of their roster, in terms of the experience they bring, and uh, it's kind of nice in a way to set your expectations accordingly. Well, it's just something that we did not see them take advantage of last year. Again, in 2019, mm-hmm. the White Sox lost the season series to the Kansas City Royals. Uh, it was 10-9 to 9 as far as that season series. So uh, we are not used to, Jim, as far as doing this podcast for the last seven seasons, the White Sox taking care of business against teams like the Royals and Tigers. And sure, they're 9-1, and one, against those two teams, but they still have 10 more games against the Tigers and Royals. And let's face it, when you have Cleveland winning 20 straight games against Detroit, you're going to have to sweep the Tigers to keep pace with the teams ahead of you in the American League Central. Yeah, and uh, it just happens to be this year, too, that when you have eight teams of 15 making the postseason, that uh, just beating on the lesser teams goes... Most of the way, <laughs> like, you know, if this were, say, a traditional postseason arrangement where five teams made it and it'd be hard pressed to get three teams from one division into the postseason, then, yeah, you'd be looking at, you know, just beating the Tigers as a way to keep pace with the Indians. And, and then you hope that uh, they can wrestle the Indians to a draw or even like, you know, maybe have that 10 to 9 edge, you know, the the, the classic boxing decision uh, when it comes to the teams above them. But in this case, it doesn't, you know, it, it matters to some extent. You can't get waxed by those teams above, uh, you know, the, above the White Sox in the standings or, you know, their counterparts equal or superiors in the NL Central. But for a season like this, when you have uh, such a disparity between the haves and have-nots in the American League and, and even, you know, in the other divisions where, you know, the Red Sox are not a factor this year. And uh, uh, the the Angels are really disappointing. You have these teams that, uh, you know, haven't been contenders in previous seasons are definitely not contending this year, at least in the first half. You know, we've seen with the Rays that all it takes is a hot week to get back into it. But so far, the teams that, you know, the White Sox were counting on contending with, the Red Sox, the Angels, the Rangers, they haven't really shown up so far. So just having this exemplary record against teams that are beneath them, uh, does most of the work for them. Yeah, and hopefully the White Sox do get some help right now as we are streaming this. The Cleveland Indians are only leading one to nothing. That game is in the top of the sixth inning against the lowly Pittsburgh Pirates. And uh, the Minnesota Twins, Jose Brios is pitching really well. That's going to the bottom of the sixth inning, but the Twins are only up one to nothing on the Milwaukee Brewers, and the Brewers have been doing the White Sox a favor, really playing the Twins tough. Uh, as they have already won one game in that series as they're trying to win the series uh, against the Twins. But let's talk about as far as the White Sox and their top offensive performances this week. And it really starts with Tim Anderson, Jim. Nine for 16 against Detroit pitching this week. 
four home runs and seven runs batted in. And I asked you on Monday, Jim, if Tim Anderson is the most important offensive player for the White Sox. We both agreed at this time he is. And I think he made a pretty convincing case this series. He did, but I will say that Jose Abreu also has a big hand in making the offense more watchable. He does, and that was going to be my next topic. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but I think you know when you uh, you know given Abreu's flaws that he, he's not uh, he's not somebody you count on for plate discipline. He grounds into too many double plays, even in better years. He grounded into a lot of double plays. You know, range limited first baseman, great throwing. You know, handles the things hit at him, but. Uh, you know, when it comes to value added defensively, he doesn't really do that. Uh, it's easy to fixate on his flaws or at least forget what it's like when he's humming. So it's nice for him to have a series like this to where he is such an outsized presence in the roster. And you realize like, okay, this was the, uh, this was the Abreu of the first three years, like the late twenties Abreu that makes, uh, it, that makes, you can build an offense around, or at least you can feature him three through five and feel, feel good about it. Yeah, in a 162-game season that spans six months, Jose Abreu is going to have three bad to okay months, and he's going to have three excellent months. And then it turns out at the end of the season, he's above average. That's just the way that his career has been lately with the Chicago White Sox. When you're, when you're playing a 60-game season, obviously, you don't have that benefit. But it's like already, we're almost halfway through, and it's like, it's just like mirroring what he would do in a 162-game season, Jim. Bad two weeks, really good two weeks, uh, where he's just hot. And you're right, he helps carry the offense. And he was 9-for-18 in this series. Uh, he had a big home run in Game 3 of the series uh, that broke the tie in the bottom of the eighth inning. And Edwin Carcion, uh followed that up with a home run himself as the White Sox won Game 3, 5-3. Uh, Abreu had six RBIs in this series. He started 2023 for 21 with runners in scoring position. And now Abreu is four for his last eight with runners in scoring position. And I think part of that, what's kind of starting this turnaround for Abreu, Jim, and this is based on the eye test. I haven't done any deep dive into baseball savant and looking as far as at the pitch charts. But my the, my eyes tell me that Abreu is d- displaying a bit more patience at the plate. And instead of just being very aggressive in these situations, he's starting to wait a little bit more until he finds a pitch that he can crush in the zone. Yeah, it seems like he got tired of hitting ground balls. Right. And so he's you know, laying a bit off the bottom of the zone. His eyes are up a bit for um, you know, covering, say, you know, inner half. Like he can still get the... You know, I, I think when he's so focused on covering the entirety of the plate and entirety of the zone that... Not only does he expand the zone downward and hit a lot of ground balls or or chase a lot of sliders, but he also is vulnerable to those you know relentless fastballs inside that you know just jam them and then you know, also result in weak pop ups or grounders that also turn into double plays because he gets tied up coming out of the box and is even slower going down the line. But when he's got the uh, when he calibrates himself to not I, I guess expand that zone like three to four inches downwards and two to three inches off the plate. Uh, it just, I think, puts him in a much better hitting position to where if they come inside, he can inside out it. He's got that swing back. Uh, I, I think that's the difference between him and like an Encarnacion who's kind of homers in low average. Uh, I'm looking at his stats this year. His career average is 293. His slugging percentage is 513. 
you know, as you mentioned, you know, his, his uh, season mirroring his year, uh, his average this year, 292, his slugging percentage, 509. So basically he's right. one point beneath his career average, four points beneath his career slugging percentage. So he's basically right where he needs to be aside from the walks are a bit down. He's not getting hit with as many pitches. So his OBP is down a little bit, but he's still that same hitter hitting a little few more ground balls, but I think he's starting to pull himself out of that. And the, uh, the pitches that might've tied him up or might've been uh, pitches that he would just beat into the ground and hopefully not with runners on are now being muscled out to right field, being, uh, you know, driven to the right or left center gaps. And he's, you know, not quite the home run power. Isn't quite there. He's not the, I don't, I don't think he's quite at that 30 home run form yet, but he's not in that, uh, you know, what would be like a 50 double play pace a season. If it were 162 games, he, he's, he's pulled himself out of that rut and, I think it's so painful when he's in that rut and, and the fact that he's in his 30s and he signed a three-year contract that most teams or maybe more, you know, every other team would not have signed him for. It's easy to fear the worst. And so, uh, you know, when he feeds that, it's very easy to get into dark places. And I think uh, uh, Brayu also gets into dark places himself, maybe not mentally, but just physically. Uh, habitually, he gets in these places. And it's nice for him to pull himself out of that and a lot of White Sox fans with him. Right. I just don't think we talk about that in the same tone when Abreu is struggling as in the tone we talk about like Nomar Mazzara, right? At least for me, yes, I was critical of Abreu because he was struggling with runners in scoring position and he was getting the most played appearances in these situations and he didn't think that Dallas Keuchel's (laughs) words after a game were as motivational uh, as some others think, and uh, part of the reason why the White Sox struggled early in this season offensively was because of Abreu. But there's always that hope that, especially if you've been watching ever since Abreu's been with the White Sox, he's going to snap out of it. And when he snaps out of it, he does carry this offense, or he and he doesn't have to this year. When you have other great offensive players in the lineup, it does make this offense even more dangerous. So when you got Anderson 9 for 16 with four home runs, and then a couple batters later, it's Jose Abreu, and he's 9 for 18, driving in six mm-hmm. runs. That That's why the White Sox scored 31 runs in this four-game series against the Detroit Tigers. And on top of that, we can't forget about these performances as well. Uh, Yuan Mikado is 4 for 14, but he walked five times in this series. Uh, so he got on base nine out of 19 times uh, that he was at the plate, and he also did hit a home run. Uh, Edwin Carnacion, again, had the two-homer game. He was 3 for 12 on the series. He had four walks. And Aloy Jimenez, he had three hits in the final game. I thought he was struggling a little bit uh, as far as his four-game series. Only had two hits prior uh, to the final game of the series. And he hit a big home run uh, to left field. And it was just one of those things, like, I'm watching Jimenez, Jim, and it's like, I'm asking myself, how is he not pulling these pitches? Like, is he purposely trying mm-hmm. to go out to right field? And then his final at-bat of the series, he's able to finally pull a pitch. And Steve Stone made a good point is that when Jimenez is going to right field, that's when he seems to get into better rhythm and when he starts to get hot. And then he will eventually start turning on the pitches uh, that he should be pulling down the left field line, especially with power. Is that something that you're seeing as well? Well, I'm kind of curious. I had a thought, so now I'm looking up the pitch that he homered on or the sequence. Let me take a look here. First pitch, home run to left field. So I wonder if it's like a two-strike thing 
where if he gets into a bad count uh, or, you know, he fouls a pitch off and suddenly it's uh, 0-2 or 1-2, if, if right field is just how he settles on letting the ball travel further, got it. not okay. uh, swinging and missing. And so maybe just with his, um, you know, being a young hitter, still trying to time the league and, and uh, you know, not quite being able to drive the ball to the traditional power field with regularity yet, that maybe he just gets into deeper counts, waste pitches or fouls off pitches he should be able to damage. And so it's, you know, now he's more the matter of he's so talented and strong hitting the right field that he just uh, kind of assumes he's he can produce that way. And he doesn't try to do too much when he has two strikes. And I think that's why his slugging percentage is so high, even though his average is so low, he's able to do a lot of damage to right field the way other hitters can't. I think there is, uh, you know, he should be able to do more, and I think it speaks to the standards that uh, 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 Jimenez has, has I, I would say, maybe created for himself, or at least uh, you know the damage that he did in the minor leagues. It's like, well, it's great that he can have that power to right field, but it's also something where, you know, when he has all those you know uh, 110 mile per hour grounders or, or line drives that turn into outs, and when we talk about like it, it, he's unlucky so far, it's kind of unlucky. But it's also when they're in the ground and they can shift for him in the infield, um, that's a way that he's going to be naturally unlucky. And so you really like to see him when there's a hanging slider that he gets under it, that he uh, he drives it hard to left field and that he doesn't uh, you know, hit a uh, grounder or a low to the ground line drive that can be caught by a shifted infielder. And uh, that's one thing I'm keeping an eye on, especially like early in counts. And so when he gets a first pitch that he likes and drives it out to left field, that's, I think, when I think he's going to be the fully formed hitter that he hints at being the 300 hitter, the guy who can slug 570 just because of the zone coverage he has and the ability to drive the ball out every way. I think it's great that he can hit the ball out to right field, but as we saw earlier in the game when he hit the fly ball that was knocked down the warning track, that's another way to have a lot of deep flyouts that don't really do anything. When he's driving the ball to left field, I think that's when he's at his best. And uh, if he can do that, maybe that's his mode earlier in the count and, and right field is what he does when he has two strikes to get more out of more at-bats, that's fine. But I think it's just the mistake pitches that he sometimes hits in the ground that I think is Something where his either timing isn't there or the barrel isn't where he needs it to be or the swing plane isn't right. But there's improvement there on the left side because he shouldn't have, you know, as strong as he is, uh, he shouldn't have to settle for Adam Eaton's home run chart. You know, like a lefty, uh, you know, like a lefty who has to pull the ball in the air to hit homers. His spray chart should be somebody who can cover pole to pole. And I think we're seeing that more in the last week. Yeah. Frank Manichino, the hitting coach of the Chicago White Sox, told James Vegan before the game on Thursday regarding as far as Aloy Jimenez to look at the batted ball data between the pitches that are in the strike zone and the pitches that are out of the strike zone. And I think that's a good homework assignment from the White Sox hitting coach because you're right, Jim, when you're watching Jimenez is at bats, he's been hyper aggressive as in he doesn't want to walk. And he he's, I think, been more aggressive than Jose Abreu on some pitches out, yeah. out of the strike zone. He wants to greet his mom. Right. And I, I just think that <laughs> what we've seen with Abreu and what we saw in the final game, right, because Jimenez did walk. Uh, there was a situation with runners in second and third, and I thought that was a great plate appearance for Jimenez because I think in previous games, without talking to Frank Manichino, 
Jimenez would have been ultra aggressive to put the ball in play and to pick up an RBI. But this is not the 2019 Chicago White Sox. You have Edwin Encarnacion behind you. So if the pitcher is not going to pitch to you, take your walk, load the bases, and see what the veteran who's had eight straight seasons of hitting 30-plus home runs can do. And, of course, Encarnacion walked, uh, and then Noah Mazzara hit <laughs> Which is, hey. It worked. But that, that drove it yeah, around. it did. Yeah. So I, 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 that's what I want to see in the in these next couple of weeks for Jimenez. I know he's going to be super hyped for this upcoming series because he just wants to crush the Chicago Cubs every time he gets an opportunity and we'll talk about that series uh, later in the show as we'll preview it. But that's the one thing I want to see from Jimenez is be a little bit more patient and more focused on the pitches that you really want to drive rather than just try to make contact on everything. And that, at least that's what I've seen early this season. Um, but when he is more patient and he does get something to drive, as you, as you mentioned, Jim, with the slugging percentage, He's not missing when he gets those opportunities, but he's not putting himself in a position to have those opportunities. Uh, Also offensively this week, a highlight, Luis Robert had his first multi-home run game in game one, Jim, but he missed the last two games with a hand injury. He he tried to make a diving catch. I can't even believe that he was anywhere near the area and almost made that catch, but out of precaution, the White Sox kept Luis Robert out of the lineup the last two games. Manager Rick Renteria has said there's nothing to be concerned about, and the expectation is that Robert is supposed to play this weekend series at Wrigley Field and watch Robert needs to amputate his right hand. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. It's almost happened before. (laughs) I'm kidding. But the one thing offensively that caught my eye, and this is something I mentioned as far as the series key on Monday's show, is the number five, five being the magic number. The White Sox are now 11-1 when they have scored five-plus runs in a game. The one loss was on opening day. So the White Sox have won 11 straight times when they've scored at least five runs. When you look on the pitching side, the White Sox are now 13 and two holding opponents to four runs or fewer. So if they score five runs offensively, they've put themselves in a terrific position to win. And if they can avoid having the, the opposition scoring five runs, they're also putting themselves in a terrific position to win. So, so far, if you like early trends, that is the one trend that I'm seeing is that five is the magic number. The White Sox are 11 and one when they score five runs or more, and they are 13 and two when holding opponents to four runs or fewer to start 2020. Let's move over on the pitching side. And the, I think the key highlight for the White Sox starting pitching uh, this week was Dane Dunning's debut four and a third innings pitched. He allowed five hits, three earned runs, one walk, but he had seven strikeouts in the game with 73 pitches. And he went toe to toe with the number one draft pick, Casey Mize. Not bad, Jim, for someone who hasn't pitched in a competitive game in two years. Yeah, hasn't hasn't thrown a pitch in anger in that long. And I don't think Schaumburg is something that you can really simulate uh, that kind of experience just because, one, you know, they're, they're facing incomplete lineups and can't really field two full teams. And also, you know, I, I think when you have these intra-squad games and you have these uh, alternate training sites that nobody's really in the business of trying to demoralize anybody else there. I mean, they're all on the same team. You know, they want to have their own success. They want to get in their own good habits and, and good counts. But I don't think it comes at the 
they don't want to come at the expense of somebody else's ability to contribute. So it's, uh, yeah, that's why I think it was important for the teams to be able to play other teams uh, in the, in the preseason before actually getting into action. But uh, yeah, he was impressive. And I think probably as good as you could expect having, you know, four good innings and then tiring the fifth, just with his ability uh, to, you know, spin a breaking ball uh, the way that, We've seen with a number of guys like, you know, uh, I would say Giolito was supposed to have the great curveball. Fulmer was supposed to have the great curveball. Lopez's best secondary pitch was supposed to be the curveball. Dylan Cease was supposed to have a wipeout curveball. And, and all of them have had varying degrees of difficulty throwing that pitch in the majors. And probably Cease is the closest one who has been able to throw it with some level of confidence. But even then, like it's been contingent on getting the right count for it. He hasn't been able to throw it four strikes and also as a wipeout pitch. So to see Dunning come up and throw that pitch in any count and, and spin it with different tilts and, and degrees of sharpness, spinning on what he needed from it, was really fun to see. And uh, it's not something that's been really his hallmark. I mean, he, he's had a good one, and he's you know, but I think his, his hallmark really as a prospect has been the four-pitch mix, the fastball command, the fastball stability, like not having a velocity drop off from like inning one through six. Like he's been pretty good at being... His in-game endurance has been pretty good. We didn't see that this time just because I think the ramp up has been, you know, he, he was a guy who was supposed to be ramping up at the end of March and then use the minor league season to get in the gear. And now there's no minor league season. So he's had to make that up in the fly. So I was hoping for three de- decent innings where he might uh, get punished a bit and to get through four with no real damage. And, uh, you know, then go out there when it looked like it wasn't a good idea. And that's when he suffered. Um, you know, that's maybe a, uh, something to wonder about with Rick Renteria and not, and not really a criticism so much as wondering what he was trying to get out of them. It might have been like something like he wants to see. He wants to try to build up his endurance and break through a wall uh, that he might not be able to break through in Schaumburg. You know, that, that there's some reason to that. But whatever reason it was, you know, he did go out there when it didn't look like a good idea. And it turned out to be that way where just like the, the results uh, kind of mirrored the thought process. But uh you know, that's not necessarily his fault, at least. And you're speaking about the three-run homer that Dunning gave up in the fifth inning, and Detroit was up at yeah. uh, three to one at that time. Yeah, and, and you know, I probably, you know, if it was a game where the White Sox needed to win it, I probably wouldn't have had him start the fifth. Um, so, you know, in, in my opinion, it was at least three batters too long, but uh, it, le- it was at least one batter too long. Well, Dane Dunning was sent back to Schaumburg, where he will need to be for the next 10 days, unless there is a significant injury to the White Sox starting rotation and knock on wood, that does not happen. Uh, but it does set up for Dunning. If he is going to make another start with the White Sox, uh, possibly against the Kansas city Royals uh, next weekend, either Saturday, August 29th or Sunday, August 30th. So circle those dates as i uh, I'm expecting Jim that Dane Dunning does return and make another start for the White Sox. And after that weekend, maybe he just stays with the White Sox. I'm not expecting as far as any significant trade activity. That is the weekend before the trade deadline for the 2020 season. And I don't expect the White Sox to try to acquire another starting pitcher uh, to help them uh, as far as trying to their, their postseason campaign or trying to make the, mm-hmm. the postseason in 2020. I do think that if they're going to have any 
quote-unquote addition to the starting rotation, it's going to be Dane Dunning and then whatever they get out of Ronaldo Lopez or Carlos Rodon if they're healthy enough uh, to return. We'll talk about those two uh, later in the show. So Dane Dunning had his debut, and he got the highest honor a rookie starting pitcher can have for the White Sox and no decision. And uh, Lucas Giolito, though, uh, he made the the start on Game 4, and uh, after a bad first inning against St. Louis, Giolito made an adjustment before today's game. Here is the audio from Lucas Giolito explaining what he changed after the game. That was a... A big point of emphasis coming into this start uh, was cleaning up my first inning. And uh, basically, I just had, try and keep it brief, uh, I just had a lot more focus in my pregame warm-up and my bullpen, uh, as opposed to the starts previous to this one. Um, A lot more emphasis on kind of getting it going, almost as if I'm throwing my first inning in the pen before going out there for the actual first inning. Um, You know, simulating batters, getting that intensity up. Uh, getting that game speed kind of going early so that when I hit that first inning, there's no surprises. Uh, I know where I'm at and, 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 um, you know, we can just kind of go from there. And yeah, again, that difference as far as having the higher intensity bullpen session prior to the game really worked out for Lucas Giolito. Seven innings pitched, three hits, zero runs allowed, one walk, and 13 strikeouts, tying a career high. And Lucas Giolito's season ERA is now down to 3.89, Jim. And uh, I wonder, is this a solution that we've been talking about for a while? And what could Lucas Giolito be doing differently to address the first inning concerns? Is is having this pregame rehearsal a good way to go? Maybe, but it's also the Tigers. That's what I think we're, I'm, I'm torn on it. Like it's, it's good that he's trying something different and it makes a lot of sense to try to basically pitch a first inning before he's out there pitching the first inning, given that the second inning on is actually pretty good for him. But it's also a lineup that, you know, Gio Gonzalez looked fine against and Dylan Cease looked fine against. You know, lesser pitchers all took care of business basically. So, you know, Giolito doing the same and, or doing more than that and dominating. And, uh, that's really something where it's like stored away, but I wouldn't count on that working. I'd like to see it again uh, against a better opponent and, and see what that does. Um, but it, it's worth trying something different. I think the, uh, what people point to is the James McCann relationship, you know, maybe just McCann being behind the plate instead of Grandal and, McCann calling nine straight changeups in the seventh inning. I love that. That was just uh, two guys who were bored and trying to amuse themselves and, uh, and and waiting for the Tigers to keep them honest, and they never did. I think it speaks to the power of Giolito's changeup, but it also kind of underscores that it is the Tigers, and so I'm not taking... I'm not putting too much stock in the preparation story yet. I, I, I think it's worth trying again, but I wouldn't say he's fixed yet until I see him do it against a better team. So one of our Patreon supporters, Chef Eric, uh, on Twitter is asking us this question regarding as far as that partnership with James McCann and Lucas Giolito. And uh, obviously James McCann does not have a contract with the White Sox after this season. And Chef Eric was asking, Jim, do the White Sox re-sign James McCann and have both him and Grandal platoon at catcher DH for 2021 and beyond because McCann has proven so far to hit well enough, and he has a nice relationship with Giolito. 
I think McCann can find like a 1A catcher job somewhere else around the league. Um, I, I think it's not going to be a, a dry market for catchers, but I think he's done enough both this year and last year. I think maybe if this year was a fluke or you know, if it only had one of these two sample sizes to draw from and he's still a below average framer and just you felt like he was more of a batting average on balls in play. Uh, fortune case that maybe he wouldn't find the contract he'd want maybe to come back. But having two of these seasons in a row when he was a well-regarded catching prospect with the Tigers, maybe just like a late bloomer has figured it out, probably can find a better opportunity somewhere else in the White Sox, depending on what happens with right field and Nomar Mazzara. They just might have to try to invest more in that position rather than having this clog that's at first base in DH, even if maybe Encarnacion is let go or his option isn't picked up and it thins out a little bit. They'll still have you know, Andrew Vaughn coming up and Elo Jimenez not being a great candidate for left field. And uh, you don't want two weak defensive corners. So it's going to be a little bit tricky. And I think McCann finds a better opportunity. But, uh, you know, that, that's one thing I was kind of concerned about with Giolito and McCann. And, you know, it's one thing if Giolito uh, pitches better with McCann and the partnership is legit. But I, I think what I didn't like about the... Um, that partnership or the idea of a personal catcher is people were suggesting it before Grandal got a chance to catch him. Yeah. And so I think there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy thing there to where, you know, Grandal has a couple or, or Gilito has a couple bad starts with Grandal. Uh, one of them behind the play, especially against the twins opening day when the twins were at the height of their powers with, you know, Josh Donaldson there and healthy to where just like, okay, that's, you know, maybe a small sample, but you know, it just happened to be the unfortunate small sample that, uh, I think backed up some preconceived notions. And so McCann is going to be behind the plate there every time where people want him there. And so I'm not so convinced to, uh, you know, have him there by default. I think if it works out where you have like day games after night games and it happens to be the case where McCann is the guy, then yeah, you know, start him. That's an extra additional incentive to make that switch. Go for it. You know, arrange the catchers that way. But I, I still don't want to see McCann, be the personal catcher when the situation doesn't call for it, just because whether it's next year or whether it's just a small sample and Grandal is an intelligent catcher who has his own ideas and maybe just needs to learn that you can push Giolito into these extreme cases where he can't throw nine changeups in a row against a weak offense, that uh, there are still things for Grandal to learn with Giolito to where maybe he's not as comfortable or maybe it's not as, you know, uh, such that 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 perfect fit but it can be like you know say if McCann is like a an A or an A plus fit you know if Grandal is a B plus that's fine <laughs> and that'll work certainly well enough for next year and I'd like to see them get to that point so I, I don't want to see the White Sox force it uh to where it's limited and then you have to make big roster uh you know I guess roster shaping decisions just on the comfort of one pitcher when you didn't give that other catcher a chance well, we've been down this path before, haven't we, though? Well, the uh, if we want to go to the Tyler Flowers chapter and Chris Well, except Sale. Flowers helped out other pitchers besides Sale. Right. I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of ton of yep. cheat, Jim, because they replaced Tyler Flowers with two craptastic catchers. <laughs> yeah, you know, and here they actually made the they made the right move to get Grandal, and it happens to be that right. McCann is still better than most people envision he's framing pretty well too. I th Although I still want to know what's happening with framing this year. Omar Narvaez is, is above average this year. And so that, that makes me think that the uh, condition of the umpires and having the slow ramp up and random strike zones falls in, you know, benefits 
poor framers a little bit more. Um, that's one thing I'm, I'm a theory of mine. I'm still trying to work out, but no, I think it's one thing if you have a catcher who helps everybody, but I think, you know, when it's just a catcher who helps out one pitcher disproportionately, and then you try to shape, you know, other positions around a guy who's going to be getting 60 starts. That's when I think it gets a little bit tricky and a little bit of collateral damage. I think in the future, because you have more games against the Minnesota twins coming up. If we're going to have another Lucas Giolito against Jose Barrios matchup, I would like James McCann to catch Lucas Giolito, not just because they work well together, but nobody has hit more home runs off Jose Barrios than James McCann, right? It is that offensive part that would sway my decision. Uh, However, if it's Kenta Maeda, yeah, I would have Yasmani Grandel catch Lucas Giolito so you have that platoon advantage. And then maybe you could find time for Zach Collins to bat left-handed and be the DH in that game. And then McCann sits down. I do think it's nice that the White Sox have this great depth at the catching position. So that when Yasmani Grandel's back barks, you do have someone like James McCann to step in. And he can do a really good job. I mean, he was an all-star last year. And he has a great relationship with the White Sox ace. You know, it it is a drop-off in talent. But it's not a gigantic drop-off. Not like going from Yasmani Grandel down to Zach Collins, which would make people really panic uh, as far as watching the White Sox. And we may have that situation next year. Uh, if James McCann does leave the White Sox after his contract expires, because I agree with you, Jim, if the Philadelphia Phillies can't sign JT Real Muto, that's one logical place that I could see James McCann going, and he would be the starting catcher for the Philadelphia Phillies when Real Muto takes over for Gary Sanchez and the New York Yankees. I'm already foreseeing this. <laughs> um, but I know this has been brought up a lot, and every time McCann doesn't catch Giolito in 2020, Jim, this is going to be a topic on social media, in the comment section at Sox Machine. Why isn't James McCann catching Lucas Giolito every single game? And I don't think it's necessary. I, I am with you. But there are some opportunities later this season where I do think it makes sense right away, especially in the hypothetical that I brought up, and we could see this a couple more times this season, if it's Jose Breos on the mound and it's Giolito pitching, yeah, I want James McCann in the lineup catching, not because he has a great relationship with Giolito, because he hits Breos really well. Yeah, and then you might have a DH spot too open for a grand dollar. You might have a day game after a night exactly. game. So there, there are lots of yeah. opportunities. I just, I, I don't want to see that become the default just because I think you can get into situations where like next year, if they aren't able to, if there's no possible way for them to retain McCann in a way that makes sense for both parties, it's just, does that mean like, you're just going to be like wincing every time G Lito takes the mound with somebody else behind the plate or you just write off his failure. So that, that's why, you know, I understand that this year you just got to make the most of it. And there is that incentive just while McCann's here to pair him up. And, and so I get that. And I think like if it were 50, 50 or maybe even like 60, 40 McCann, that's, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, there are, there are ways to make it work when you have two talented catchers. Uh, the White Sox aren't in the position of usually having multiples that uh, make it easy to just toggle back and forth between players with no real drop-off. So this is cool. <laughs> and I don't mind seeing them explore the advantages of having two uh, startable players, but I just don't want to see it be the default to where just, you know, it becomes a reflective point of criticism because I think it makes sense to start Grandal as well. Just... 
to eventually learn. And because Grand, you know, it's not like Grandal is Josh Fegley, to where <laughs> you know, the 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 starting pitcher is shaking him off, you know, seven or eight times a game and just doesn't like throwing to him. And you have the bench coach uh, kind of criticizing him to the press, like they're both intelligent catchers with proven track records of helping pitchers out. And you know, just might take a few starts or a uh, partial season to get on the same page but you know you have other pitchers who have spoken to Grandal's ability to get the most out of them including like Gio Gonzalez who got that boost last year and so it makes sense to give him that shot and give him an honest shot to where if it's just a bad game that he has that warps the numbers you know not to go running away from it well speaking of our old friend Josh Fagley Let's switch gears as we discuss the other White Sox starters in previewing the first series of the Crosstown Classic. Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. The sweet aromas of the apple fritter, cinnamon roll, and blueberry muffin are hard to resist. So making it the rest of the way home without reaching in your McDonald's bag is no easy task. But nothing worth doing is easy. Wake up and pair any one of these sweet, fluffy, frittery bakery treats with a McCafe iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Chicago White Sox will now make their way to Wrigley Field for a three-game series. The Chicago Cubs are 16-8. and They are first place in the National League Central. On offense, they are averaging 4.79 runs per game. And on the run prevention side, they're only allowing 4.16 runs per game. Offensively, though, I wonder how they're scoring so many runs. Because as a team, the Chicago Cubs are hitting 228. With an on-base percentage of 339, that's a pretty high team OBP. Uh, but they're only slugging 410. So the batting average and the slugging raises an eyebrow, especially with the talent that the Chicago Cubs have. Offensively, who's hot? Ian Happ. He's really carrying the Cubs offense right now. He's hitting 315 with a 438 on-base percentage, slugging 671. He leads the team in home runs with 6 and RBIs with 14. Jason Kipnis, we will see Jason Kipnis at some point this weekend. In 15 games, he's hitting 282 with a 408 on base percentage and slugging 564. Jason Hayward is having a nice bounce back. He's hitting 271 with a 362 on base percentage and slugging 441. And one of these players that really fitting as far as the team hitting side, uh, Anthony Rizzo. The good is, is that he's got a 406 on base percentage. But he's only slugging 449. That's below his career number. And he's hitting 231. But he's doing a great job getting on base with the walks. Now, who is cold? What in the world is going on with Javier Baez? He's hitting 189 with a 237 on base percentage, slugging 344. He has struck out 34 times to just four walks. Chris Bryant has been hurt, but he is only hitting 177 with a 271 on base percentage and slugging 
323 and Nico Horner. They were hoping that they would get a lot of production out of him at second base. He's only hitting 204 with a 286 on base percentage and slugging 245. So without Ian Happ doing what he's doing and then Kyle Schwarber adding some power as well in the home run front, uh, this Cubs offense is not hitting on all cylinders and that kind of Sounds like a conversation we had a couple weeks ago, Jim, regarding as far as talking about the White Sox offense. Uh, Your pitching problems for this three-game series starting on Friday. The night games are at 7.15 p.m. Central Time. It is Dallas Keuchel against John Lester. On Saturday, Dylan Cease gets an opportunity to face the Chicago Cubs as he'll make the start for the White Sox. He'll be going up against Kyle Hendricks. And on Sunday, it is to be announced for the White Sox. This is a 1.20 p.m. Central Time game. And he will, whoever that is, will be going up against you, Darvish. And let's start with the Sunday matchup, Jim. Any guesses on who we could see Sunday night for the White Sox? Well, that would be, uh, yeah, I would think probably Gio Gonzalez's turn, but it doesn't sound like it's going to be Gio Gonzalez. Yeah. But just like, so I'm trying to figure out what that would be, or if they're going to try to do like some kind of, I I would hope not bullpen (laughs) just because I think Rick Renteria's version of bullpen is just trying to steal a game with pitchers. He doesn't, consider important so yeah and it's not going to be dane dunning so unless it's like Ronaldo lopez coming back well let's play this hypothetical you know we know that lopez has been throwing at schaumburg and which is a good sign because when he walked off the mound in his first start against the twins in that first inning i was really fearing the worst like shoulder injury he's done for the season and he's probably done for 2021 uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case could should we prepare to expect ronaldo lopez to throw on sunday well i mean that could be good like i would like to see you know watching Gio gonzalez pitch and, and seeing what he has to offer so far in 2020 you know he stalls out in the fifth inning but he you know he had enough to strike out 10 his last time out and you had uh, some some bite on the curveball he hadn't had before, so it seems like the stuff is starting to power up a little bit, um, enough to where the changeup is now a threat too. Just you know, still ran out of gas, and and, and things to show hitters a third time through. That that would be the case. Like if they want to reintroduce Lopez, not get a pitch count too much. You know, perhaps that's the case where you can piggyback him, to where you have Lopez open up for two, and then have Gonzalez go as far as he can. You know, maybe start against the bottom of the Cubs order. And then, uh, you know, in the third inning or maybe second inning, depending on where Lopez is, and then try to get through six with those two pitchers. That's what I would like to see just based on Gonzalez's usage. Like, I, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea to start Gonzalez anymore, or at least based on the way he's gone. Like, he's the perfect candidate to be a second pitcher for like a Matt Foster, who's been pitching really well opening games, or like Jimmy Cordero, if they wanted to use him for that, like a power ready, and then you know, decide whether the Cubs want to face that guy or if they want to plan for Gonzalez later in the game and be able to steal two innings with a guy like Foster or or Cordero. So that would be the case where if they want to get Lopez back in, but they don't want to put like a full start's worth of pressure on him to maybe have them pair up, especially since there will be two off days the following week, you know, with the Pittsburgh series being a two-gamer that's that's bookended by days off to where you can maybe use two starters in the same day see where they're at, and then shape the next turn using those off days. Yeah, I, I think you raise a good point. Maybe in the best situation, if the White Sox are really trying to win on Sunday, maybe you try that Foster 
Gonzalez pairing where you hope that Foster can get through two innings scoreless and then hand the ball off to Gio Gonzalez and see if he can get you through the sixth inning. And then you go back to your bullpen matchup, seven, eight and ninth innings. Is that kind of what you're hinting at? Yep. It'd be really nice to have Aaron bummer in that type of situation. Yeah. I guess that's what they're saving Ross Detweiler for though. But yeah, it's uh yeah, that either Foster or Lopez, if they decided to bring him back, I wonder if Lopez, they'll say, you know, because, you know, talking about uh, Dan Dunning and, and how they brought him up against the Tigers, and we've seen him do that before with pitching prospects, you know, saving them for lesser opponents, lesser offenses. Like, I remember with Lopez, they waited for the Cubs and Dodgers to pass and did the same thing with Cease and Kopech and on and on. So it seems like maybe with Lopez, if, you know, rather than bring him up, to tax his shoulder against a team like the Cubs, maybe they wait for the Pirates, you know, a, a lesser pressure series, especially like if it's a, a, where they don't want to get swept or if they have a chance to win a series against a quality opponent. Uh, that's a case where they might feel like they want to win that game. And so Lopez isn't the guy. Hopefully, you know, Lopez is healthy enough to be an option. And I wouldn't mind seeing, you know, there, there is use in a season like this when you have a 28-man roster and expanded pitching staffs to where these guys who can pitch four effective innings can be useful. Like if Dunning happens to top out this year at four innings and everything else is dicey, um, you know, maybe pair him with a Detweiler. Same thing with Lopez and the Gonzalez. Like you can mix and match to where uh, all of a sudden you need two pitchers. Uh, All you need is two pitchers and you're through six or seven. Uh, That's ideally, of course, sometimes it doesn't work out that smoothly, but there's a thought process there to where you can pair two pitchers up who have unique talents or more talent than a reliever does uh, and, and can offer more and, and you can still save the bullpen that way. So I hope there's some flexibility here that Renteria is willing to explore that is not traditional starter usage, but is not also a traditional Johnny Holstaff game where, you know, Cody Hoyer and Zach Birdie, you just have these, this uh, line of uh, hard throwing righties to where a lineup can be uh, matched up against them, even if they are hard throwing. So the keys to this series, what are you thinking that the White Sox will need to take advantage of if there are any opportunities to take advantage of against the Chicago Cubs? Again, the Cubs are 16-8. and eight. They've been playing really good baseball. And John Lester and Kyle Hendricks and Hugh Darvish uh, have been a very formidable top three in their starting rotation. Well, uh, you know, to, to go back to the top with, you know, guys like Abreu and Jimenez being a little bit more disciplined and getting more out of their at-bats, I think that's going to be... The key is to have like a longer lineup because as as disappointing as the Cubs have been in certain spots in their lineup and their team average is unimpressive and the slugging is unimpressive, they have six to seven guys in their lineup with an OBP over 350. So they just keep the line moving. It's like a relentless lineup that just constantly poses traffic to where you don't need to come up with the big, you know, guys don't necessarily have to come up with a big hit that inning because there will be opportunities down the line. Uh, The way the White Sox have done it is with the instant offense and homers like one through eight. Uh, you know, the Cubs are doing a bit differently and just being able to wear down offenses and, you know, maybe Rizzo isn't, you know, hitting well, but he's getting, you know, he's drawing walks. He's also got hit by pitches six times because his elbow is in the strike zone. So he's just got different ways to make himself useful. And uh, I think that's the one weakness with the White Sox offense or the one, you know, one weakness where better pitching can exploit them or they can go dormant for a series of the time is just they can get to be easy outs at times, or they can be exploitable, they can be expandable and make weak contact or strike out. So I I think this 
enhanced plate discipline we're seeing from some segments of the order. And also that might be a byproduct maybe of Luis Robert being a bit out uh, or being benchable um, because they're facing a weaker opponent. They don't need to push him when he might not be 100%. But, you know, when he's back in the lineup and he is aggressive, just to have some guys who can counterbalance that aggressiveness uh, with drawing walks so that if Robert is an easy out winning to where there aren't two more easy outs behind him. I think the key for me is going to be Dylan Cease on Saturday. As you mentioned, the Chicago Cubs are doing a terrific job getting on base and they grind out at bats. And that has me really concerned about Dylan Cease. Eno Sears, the athletic wrote about five starting pitchers from a kind of a fantasy perspective, if you should buy or sell their stock. And I recommend reading his profile on Dylan Cease uh, because there is a Promise. I mean, Dylan Cease is carrying a 3.16 ERA uh, on the season. And you would look at the ERA and saying he's having a terrific season. But there are red alerts going off with Lucas G. Uh, I'm sorry, Dylan Cease. Uh, Cease's strikeout rate, his strikeout percentage is now in the 15%. Last year is 24%. Uh, and Cease's curveball, according to Eno Saris, has yet to manufacture a whiff no hitter has whiffed on Dylan Cease's curveball it has been the slider that's been far more effective for Cease and Saris's suggestion is that Cease should make a, a an adjustment and just stick fastball slider and maybe throw the changeup a little bit more and, and ditch the curveball because it's just like not Giolito a did yeah kind of like what it, Giolito did that's a good point Jim um, but the fact that Cease is not striking out as many batters as he should with his arsenal uh, and the FIP is really high compared to his ERA. Like Saturday could be a wake up call. If Dylan sees continues to throw that he has been, I think he's getting good results because a lot of what we brought up in this episode, he's faced the Royals and he's faced the Tigers and he's gotten mm-hmm. away with not being very effective. He is not going to have that opportunity on Saturday. And I, I feel like, that could be a disastrous start if Cease doesn't approve upon how he threw against Kansas City and Detroit. You're a you're a betting man, uh, and you like the top bets. <laughs> For Saturday's game, can you put a bet on Anthony Rizzo getting hit by a pitch? You know, I haven't seen it on uh, Bet Rivers Casino in Chicago, just in in Rosemont. They don't have hit by pitch. Because uh, given Cease's uh, tendency to miss glove side and how Rizzo clou- crowds the plate, I can see him taking a fastball off the elbow pad or a slider on the foot, but I think he's going to get hit. So if you can bet that, I would. Okay, so I'll do that for you, Jim. If I can make a bet, will Anthony Rizzo get hit on Saturday's game against Dylan Cease? Uh, I will try to find someone that will take that bet for us. Cool. And, uh, we'll, we'll use that money to help improve SoxMachine.com. Oh, man. No, I'm thinking, like, what could be a disastrous start for Cease is not being able to get out of the third inning, and he's allowed, mm-hmm. like, five runs because he's walked, like, four batters, and he's hit a couple of batters. The Cubs may only have three hits, but they're up by five, and it's not even through the third inning yet. That's kind of what I'm foreseeing as far as a disastrous result. So I'm hoping for the best, though. I'm hoping yeah. Cease can make some adjustments, but... I know a lot of people are happy with the way that he's thrown against Kansas City and Detroit. And, yeah, he's gotten the results, but I don't know what's going on with the strikeout rate, especially when someone who could throw 99 and he has that, I think, a good slider. 
Uh, he's just not racking up the strikeouts, and that's going to be a concern when he faces better teams. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny watching the uh, looking at the probable pitcher list and seeing, you know, you have Keuchel versus Lester in the first game, and you see their photos and they're, uh, you know, striking the same pitcher pose with their arm cocked behind them, and they're both you know veteran lefties who aren't going to overpower anybody, and they're immensely successful nevertheless. And then the next game is like totally you know, polar opposites in styles with Cease and Hendricks because Hendricks, you know, is throws, you know, was fastball averages 10 miles per hour or less than ceases. Right. And uh, just knows how to manipulate the ball the way Cease does not yet. So it could be a fascinating contrast and maybe something that, uh, you know, is not instructive necessarily for Cease because I don't think, you know, Hendricks can't, you know, you can't say be more like Kyle Hendricks. That's like saying be more like Greg Maddox. Just some people have the command. Some people do not. Some people never, you know, some people can improve. Most can't. So you can't count on Cease getting that kind of command. You just want him to harness that power a little bit and, and just the fastball command set up the breaking balls a little bit better. But yeah, it, it could be ugly. Also, the ERA is spared by some unearned runs that he had after the McCann pass ball and the strikeout and the, all those runs right. scoring after two outs. But So that's a little bit super, superficial as well that uh, you know, when you look at the runs allowed, it's a little bit different. But no, I can see that case. Uh, you know, I can see that being the case. I'm hoping that he summons Eloy Jimenez's... Uh, um, sense of revenge <laughs> to where all of a sudden he summons one of those uh, spring training outings he has with the fastball command or the curveball command and uh, puts it all together and throws seven shutout innings to where everybody's mad at Jose Quintana again. We did get a question to end the show and I thought it was be very fitting uh, on Twitter from uh, JM Trinisky and uh, they're asking, I know that the podcast isn't big on the Crosstown rivalry, but I love to see an optimist take on how much fun it would be to beat the ever-loving snot out of the Cubs uh, this weekend. And I think if the White Sox are going to win this series, <laughs> we haven't talked about Craig Kimbrell. And he threw well in his last appearance for the Cubs. But I think that if the White Sox are going to win this series, Jim, I, I I I think I like the White Sox lineup against the Cubs bullpen. I know the Cubs bullpen's been throwing better, but I could see where the White Sox steal a couple games in this weekend in the later innings and just frustrating Cubs nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the White Sox offense has actually been pretty good in late innings. Right. Uh, so yeah, it could be the case where you know Kimbrel does not phase them. I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see this series played without fans um you know usually when the series is played you know half the time the camera's panning the crowd for cubs fans going nuts uh you know with Sox fans sitting around them you know especially like in the road park like you know they look for pockets of uh celebrating Sox fans and celebrating cubs fans at guaranteed right field and and just the the couples who are there one with a cubs jersey one with a white Sox cap and and without that uh scenery in the crowd and, and that subplot underneath it and the whole environment that charges them. I'm, I'm curious what the baseball is going to look like. And I think for me, it's going to be a bit more tolerable just because I really, I remember, you know, going to White Sox games with the Red Sox there when the, when that bandwagon was starting to heat up and when the Indians had a big bandwagon in the nineties and the Yankees had one at the, the turn of the century and, you know, just having, you know, more, it seemed like more Yankees fans in the crowd than White Sox fans. And so that sound of being cheered against in their own park always depressed me and always just felt bad for fan White Sox fans who were there 
uh, yeah, I, I just, I guess that, that empathy kind of struck and, and, and made it uh, uh, secondhand unenjoyable for me, just feeling like I'm in those seats, uh, being in the home park, but not being in the home park. And so that's part of the reason why I don't enjoy the Crosstown series as much as I do. It's kind of like, you know, why I'm not a gambler is because the feeling of losing is more severe than the enjoyment I get from winning. I'm just happy not to have lost more than I'm you know, excited about winning or feeling like I'm good at it. So I think I kind of treat uh, Sox-Cubs games the same way. So I think without the fans there, I think that's going to lower my anxiety in that regard. And it's just going to be about the baseball. It's not going to be about the fan money experience, like fans who spent a lot of money to be miserable at a park. <laughs> so I think uh, I might get more out of this series than I do out of most years. And I think uh, one matchup I'm kind of fascinated by, you mentioned Javier Baez struggling. You know, every year the Sox and Cubs and the media like to size up positions against positions and who's the best blank in Chicago. And, you know, Baez has had the edge for best shortstop in Chicago, but Anderson is making, you know, especially like, you know, I, I think there is some pressure on the... Uh, you know, challenger to knock off the incumbent. Like you can't, you know, just have a hot streak and say like, okay, Anderson's better than Baez. But when the numbers are this severe right now and the balance is this severe, I think it would be kind of, uh, I am fascinated to see if Anderson keeps doing what he's doing and Baez keeps struggling like he's struggling. I wonder what that conversation is going to be like. Yeah, if Anderson continues his hot hitting from Detroit into this weekend, that's going to get louder. That conversation is going to get a lot louder on the radio circuit in Chicago next week. So hopefully Anderson does force the issue, Jim, uh, and uh, kind of, you know, shows up Javier Baez, who again, Baez is really struggling and hopefully uh, he stays quiet this weekend. It kind of reminds me of when the White Sox played the Brewers and Christian Yelich uh, was really struggling and he didn't do much in the first three games of that series. He actually didn't play the third game of the series. Uh, but in the fourth game, he had the inside the park home run, and then he walked like four times. So hopefully the White Sox avoid having Javier Baez having a big game this weekend. They need him to be quiet if they're going to have any chance to win this series. But we will recap as far as the White Sox-Cubs series on Monday Sox Machine podcast. After the Cubs series, the White Sox, it gets a little bit easier for them. They have two off days next week, so a little bit of a breather. They have a two-game home series against the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are absolutely terrible and looking to have the number one pick in the 2021 draft already. Uh, and then next weekend, it's the Kansas City Royals. So again, the White Sox are in this stretch where they could really pad and uh, really stock up as far as some wins to help their chances of making the postseason in 2020. But that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. Thank you to everyone that listened to the live stream on Mixler.com slash Sox Machine or on SoxMachine.com. And if you enjoy our work at Sox Machine, you can become a friend at Patreon.com slash Sox Machine where you receive additional content content through the podcast and through our writings there's opportunities for you to get some swag i guess this is a good opportunity jim on the coffee mug update have we sold out yet on the coffee mugs we have not but we have gotten a uh, swell of ten dollar supporters who uh you know I've, I've reserved stock for so they're taken care of and uh you know when you uh support the ten dollar tier the Stock from the, um, you know, the stock on hand for the sales for the mugs on the site shrinks. So I would say either way, like if you want to buy a mug without supporting, I would do that sooner rather than later just because we are gaining numbers and it's great to see. So thank you for all the new supporters. 
thank you for all the incumbent supporters. Thanks for everybody supporting because uh, uh, it's great. Yes. So, yeah, we look forward to Monday's episode as we recap again the White Sox and Cubs series and preview the week ahead. But now, again, we'll do that will do it for this edition of Sox Machine Live. If you don't get an opportunity to listen to the live stream, no worries. Every Sox Machine Live is recorded and uploaded into the podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Pop some new cascade in your dishwasher with 50% more cleaning power. 50% more cleaning power. New cascade does it better. 50% more cleaning power. New cascade does it cleaner. Switch to new cascade platinum with 50% more cleaning power. No need to rinse your dishes and it's even strong enough for the quick wash cycle. New cascade platinum. Pop some new cascade in your dishwasher with 50% more cleaning power. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry. As well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.